Glenn, Star Trek's in the basement. Valerie and coffee in her bedroom. <laughs> All right. Well, welcome back to Lower Decks, a Star Trek podcast by Clay Temple Media. And yeah, look, uh, we're doing Darmok this episode, <laughs> if, you, if you couldn't tell. Though uh, we have talked like that before in public, in coffee shops, in fact, and not because we were doing Darmok, though perhaps we will talk about that a little bit as we get into this episode. Darmok, of course, is the uh, second episode of the fifth season of Star Trek The Next Generation, and it aired on the 30th of October. October in 1991. And it was written by Joe Minoski from a story by Philip Lezebnik and Joe Minoski and directed by Winrick Colby. And this episode, Darmok, was nominated by one of our really longtime listeners, a great Patreon supporter and just overall awesome friend. And this came in first on the Patreon poll, which I think is absolutely no surprise to anyone. I mean, it was not even a contest really just blew everything else away. Second place on this vote, though, was the first season of Picard, which we're going to do next month. This was much more of a surprise to me, and the results were much closer. Right. It beat out Voyager before and after Deep Space Nine past Prologue, which is, I would have thought more people would have voted for that. And the animated series, The Lorelei Signal, Right, which definitely came in last. And that also was not a surprise to, to anyone. I don't know that we'll <laughs> no. ever do an episode of the animated series on the show, though, of course, we will be talking about the animated series on one of our season survivor episodes. But before we even get into doing this episode, I just want to take a minute here to let listeners know about something else that we're going to be doing on Patreon, something in addition to those uh, season survivor episodes, something we're very, very excited about. Movies. We're going to do a series on one of the three Star Trek movie franchises. That'll be something that's exclusively for Patreon supporters. But we are also letting our Patreon supporters choose which of those three Star Trek movie series we're going to do. We're going to hold that vote in a few months. We'll do that in September. And so we're letting you know about this now so that if you're heavily invested in one of those franchises over the others. You have a chance to join us at the Archon level or up so that you can participate in that vote. So you can have your say. And of course, joining us uh, there on Patreon will also help us reach that stretch goal to begin with. And you'll get access to the episodes as well as all the other bonus episodes that we've done over the years. Yeah, this will be really interesting to see how the vote turns out. Just as a reminder, the three series, three movie series franchises that we're talking about are the the original series films. So all the films that go with TOS and the TOS cast members, the next generation films, all the films that go with TNG and the TNG cast members. And then, of course, the Abramsverse um, franchise. Uh, fewer movies there. I really I, I don't know how other people think about those films. I, I'm not really familiar with how the fandom or people outside the fandom feel about those movies if they're really enjoyed, maybe both enjoyed and criticized. Yeah, and I think that that's probably going to be true, really, for, for each of these franchises. I think that people tend to have a lot more nostalgia about the original cast, original series, film franchise, but certainly it's not above criticism, and that'll be one of the things that we do, whichever franchise it is that uh, that, that wins the vote here. But I will be really interested in seeing which of those it is, because I, I just have no prediction uh, for that, based on how things go with the other polls. I mean, the one thing I think we could definitively say is that if there had been Enterprise movies, no one would vote for those. Dear Doctor, the movie. <laughs> um, but I am super excited to do these movies, whichever um, series or franchise we end up doing. Uh, and also, 
I'm just really excited to finally have a place where I can tell somebody and they might get the joke um, that when Animal Crossing came out in March of last year, um, which I think was how a lot of people spent March and April of 2020 <laughs> um, getting consumed by Animal Crossing. Um, for those who aren't familiar with the game, you're this little person um, on an island and you you make a house, you gather fruit, you fish, you live a good little life um, and you get to name your own island. And I had a hearty chuckle between me and me naming my island Tanagra. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, I have been really excited to get to this episode for a long time. And just behind the scenes, you know, we've been doing a lot of commission episodes lately and some other Patreon bonus episodes as well. So this has been coming up next for us for a long time. And we're actually finally now doing it. I mean, like literally, this was something we were supposed to record last year and just have kept having to put other episodes in front of it. And it just has felt like a huge tease because I love this episode. This is absolutely one of my favorite Star Trek episodes of all time. Just objectively, like my, my response to it is always very good. But also subjectively, this is an episode that has meant a lot to me at different points in my life. And it means so much to, to get to talk about it with you today, Valerie. I am very excited. And, you know, lately, um, because pandemic, I have been watching Trek alone. I've been trekking alone. Um, and uh, I have a friend who lives nearby um, who I have potted with, and she has never seen a single episode of Star Trek, not a single one ever. And uh, she sat down with me this week and watched Darmok. So this was the first episode of Trek she ever saw. Okay, how did it go? She loved it. She was so into it. Um and was was really excited and I've I'm hoping that I've convinced her to begin a Deep Space 9 uh watch after this. But she had so much to say. She was really captivated. She thought the message was very interesting. Uh, it was fun. It was fun to see someone be excited cuz you know, I was nervous. It's it's a, a lot of the episode is just random words. Um <laughs> Or, or not talking at all. And you could see how somebody might be like, what is this show? What is going on? Um, but but I think she really appreciated this episode. Strange one to start with, even though it's so iconic. It's such a high concept episode. And either that is your thing or it is not, right? So I think this is really a hit or miss episode. And if, you, this, if this is the sort of thing that you're into, the type of storytelling you're into, and this is your first Star Trek episode, then you are hooked forever. But this also, I think, could definitely repel some people. But maybe we should just get into our, our scene by scene here. I think we could talk around this episode for a long time. But let's, uh, let's, let's get into it. So the, the teaser opens with uh, you know, Captain's Log. So we know that the Enterprise is en route to the El Adrel system just outside Federation space. The deal is that an alien ship parked itself there three weeks ago and has been sending a mathematical signal into Federation space. And we already know that the vessel belongs to the Children of Tama, which is a species the Federation has met before, but with which it has no formal relationship. And the reason for that is that the Children of Tama's language is incomprehensible. And so first contact and, and also six subsequent contacts have gone poorly. But Picard is confident, uh, in fact, maybe a little too confident that all it will take is some patience and imagination. And, you know, they've got that here on this ship. 
So now we fast forward a bit and we're on the bridge at the moment that the Enterprise and the Children of Tama open communication and the Universal Translator is handling the individual words just fine. It's simply that they don't mean anything the way they are strung together. And I assume, right, that everybody listening to this show, to us, has seen this episode. But let's give an example anyway. Rai and Jiri at Lunga. Rai of Lawani. Lawani under two moons. Jiri of Ubaya. Ubaya of Crossed Roads at Lunga. And that sounds cool, right? But what what does it mean? And for what it's worth, the Tamarians clearly cannot really understand Picard either. So we get a scene on the Tamarian bridge between the captain and his first officer in which, even though we don't understand what they are saying, the meaning is nonetheless clear. This isn't working and they need to try a new approach. And the captain has an idea that the first officer does not like, and they're arguing about it. In the end, the captain holds out two knives. Uh, he holds them up to the view screen and says, Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra. And then his ship beams him and Captain Picard down to the surface of the planet they're orbiting. And there is nothing the Enterprise can do to stop it. They can't get Picard back. They can't send anyone else down to him. All right, so that's the teaser. And it is a big teaser. It actually ends up being 15% of the episode or, or close to it. I love that a huge part of it is actually a little stage play on the Tamarian Bridge that we can't even comprehend, right? This TV episode opens up with people shouting gibberish at each other, essentially, right? Yeah, I would love to see a like a companion episode, a mirror episode where it's the same story told from the perspective of the Tamarians, but we oh. can understand the Tamarians and we can't understand Starfleet. Oh, man, I would just love... I mean, yeah, I want Patrick Stewart to come over to my house and just shout gibberish at me. That sounds amazing. <laughs> um, and, we, you know, we couldn't fully inhabit that, right? Obviously, there. that's why this film this way with uh, with everything in, in English for us um, in the States. Um, <laughs> but it would be really cool to inhabit the other perspective here, right? Because this is the thing we're immediately shown is that there is another drastically different perspective we are as incomprehensible to them as they are to us yes and paul winfield is the the actor who is playing the the main tamarian character here whose name we won't learn until the end of the uh, the episode when when communication has really been established uh, of course he's famous for having played uh, a fairly important but but non-main cast member uh in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And he's really excellent in that film, of course. But I think he does an amazing job here in this episode of showing us how frustrated he is. I mean, even just here in the teaser, he's clearly frustrated at this situation. He's then frustrated at his, his own version of Riker, who doesn't agree with his his plan here. It also turns out that maybe it's not the best plan. I mean, the mission succeeds, but it doesn't work out well for, for him. But he's so good at conveying meaning to his words with simply his physicality and the expressions of his face and his, his eyes in particular. I mean, it's just amazing acting. Paul Winfield does such an amazing job here being so obviously warm and trustworthy and likable. Like, this is one of the things I'm going to want to talk about is, is part of how the rest of the crew on the Enterprise is reacting versus how Picard is reacting in this episode, because 
immediately, even in the teaser, we see a huge division, right? Between the rest of the crew being like, they're incomprehensible, nothing we can do. And Picard being like, guys, we got this. Like, this is literally our job. This is literally the mission of our spaceship and our organization. And I'm excited and it's fine. Um, And, you know, while the rest of the crew is seeing the Tamarians as a threat, to me, Paul Winfield does such a good job not, you know, acting without words, right? Like so much acting without words. And you just trust him. There's something kind and inviting and genuine about this character. You're absolutely right. I mean, we are going to see huge divides uh, between Picard and the rest of the crew, but then also even within the crew itself. But yeah, I mean, this is kind of a morality tale about what happens when you let like a classics major... (laughs) you know, run the spaceship and everyone else majored in like pugil sticks and Batleth at the Academy. Right. Yeah, totally. And I, I wonder, I wonder if something more is actually going on here, but I think we should get farther into the episode before I comment on that. Yeah, let's do it. So we come back from the opening credits and we're going to get two stories now, right? We are going to get what's going on with the captains on the planet. And then also we're going to get the story of what Riker and the Enterprise crew are trying to do to get Picard back or, or, or to get to him, right? So to rescue Picard in some way. Riker does try communicating with the Tamarians. I mean, he asks nicely for Picard back or at least for them to stop jamming the transporter. But the Tamarian first officer has no patience for their mutual incomprehension here. So Riker is going to send a shuttle down to the planet because even though the Tamarians could easily destroy the shuttle, he doesn't think that they really would, right? He's sort of daring them to cross the line into physical aggression. And I really enjoyed also the performance here by Richard Allen as the Tamarian first officer. His physical acting is also just top notch. I mean, it is really excellent. But what I really like about this scene is that we can see like how alike he and Riker are and that neither of them is as patient as their respective captains. And also maybe neither of them like this situation and would have made totally different choices to begin with. And so we see the commonality there and it's just, it's a brilliant way of sort of mirroring these these characters at the different levels that we get them here. Right. They're both in the role of being suspicious and very protective of their captain and a bit defensive. Um, and I think they're both a little bit, or maybe even a lot of bit, uh, less open-minded, right? Less generous, less Temba, his arms wide, <laughs> um, right? And, and just... Uh, I guess have have less faith or are, are more cynical um, or on a different kind of high alert. One of the things that that I hadn't thought about till we hopped on the, the mics, but something that is really cool about this episode, but also maybe just about the next generation in general, like the contrast between Picard and Riker that then we are seeing mirrored here in the Tamarian uh, officers as well, is that in this show, the older, more senior person is optimistic and hopeful, where I think so often in our culture, we associate optimism with youth. I think we also tend to associate optimism with foolishness, uh, with a kind of lack of uh, reality or sort of unrealism. And I think so often, especially when we're dealing with characters who are wearing military uniforms, the older characters, people who've been through it are jaded, right? And it is these younger people who are optimistic, but that is not this show. 
Picard is super optimistic, not just in like hope for the future, but that his worldview about people, about whether people are sort of inherently good or bad, right, is definitely down, comes down, definitely comes down on the side of people are inherently good and we can do this. But that's not Riker's worldview, I don't think at all. And I really like that just as a message, right, for us, the audience. Yeah, and I definitely wonder what Riker would have done as a captain. Like, I'm curious about how much of how Riker is reacting is about the fact that he is a first officer and it is his job, his biggest job is to protect the captain. Um, and if Riker had been captain, maybe we would have seen a similar optimism, though I think Riker, this was this was a situation for Picard and not for Riker, even if the roles had been reversed. One thing that was really fun about sharing this episode with a friend and a, and a new Trekker is that I think... Most millennials have a general sense that Jean-Luc Picard is a guy we like, that <laughs> that this is the captain we really like, that there's a lot of love for him. And, you know, we all love Patrick Stewart as well. It's uh, pretty, pretty easy to get behind. But this episode, when she was watching it, she was just like, oh, I love Picard. Picard is amazing. This was like a little case study in what makes him so special as a captain and it really shines because he's alone in it it was not a case study in what makes starfleet special <laughs> it was a case study in what makes picard special this is something that i'm really looking forward to talking about in our next episode right where we're going to talk about the entire first season of the show picard because although i have not seen it let's be clear about that we'll talk about that more when we get in that episode you have you'll be rewatching it i've not seen it before but i have gleaned on the internet that there are at least a that there is at least a a sizable chunk of the fandom that did not think that the picard show captured the character of picard and so that's a question that I'm going to my first watch of that series or that season with. And I think having watched this episode as like, you know, like literally two days before I'm going to start prepping for that episode or that that series, I think has primed me, right, to be thinking about who is Picard at his essence, because this is it, right? This is who I think of when I think of Picard is the Picard in this episode. I think we should definitely pick this up in that coverage and I'm and I'm glad we're recording this first because without, you know, giving stuff away, the there is a rift between Picard and Starfleet um that is introduced to us in in the show Picard, which is, you know, 30 years in the future from Darmok. Um and we do kind of see a a version of Picard that is still very morally principled, but I think a way we could read that is to say that with his age has come more cynicism, given, you know, to pick up on your point about right. youth and <laughs> optimism. Um, so that would be an amazing thread to follow through Picard, because I think there are other ways of looking at it, too. So holding that that theme and that idea in mind would uh, would be really fun. All right. Well, we will keep that in mind when we when we cover this. But let's get to the the next scene here. So, on the planet, the the two captains materialize near each other, and the Tamarian captain tosses one of the the two daggers toward Picard so that it lands at his feet, and then he says. Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra. We're going to hear that a lot this episode. But Picard tosses the dagger back and says that 
he won't fight him, uh, right? He, he thinks this is supposed to be some kind of duel. Basically, he thinks that it's the exact plot of the TOS episode Arena, which I think <laughs> we as viewers, right? We've all done this the first time we've watched it as well. You and I have now watched this like a dozen times. So we've forgotten that. But right, this is everyone's expectation. I think especially if you have seen, you know, TOS going into this, that this is like that, that, that if this had been a Kirk episode, they would have been punching already at this point. Right. But that is not going to be it at all. That's not what is happening here. And the Tamarian captain is clearly frustrated. Night falls. Uh, they put some distance between them and they're both trying to get a fire going because it is going to be cold. The Tamarian succeeds, but Picard is not able to start a fire with just a bunch of sticks. The Tamarian is performing some kind of ritual while he watches Picard struggle with his fire. But then he goes to sleep uh, and he goes to sleep with one of the daggers in his hand, you know, just in case, but he can't actually fall asleep. And he's clearly worried about Picard going through the night without a fire. And so he gets up and he gives one of his burning branches to Picard so he can use it to start his own fire. And here they finally make some headway. Temba, his arms wide, means that the... Tamarian captain is offering a gift or, or engaging in generosity. And Picard figures this out eventually. It does take a couple minutes to do that, but he figures it out. And it's these moments where Picard is thinking out loud, right? Trying to figure out what these phrases mean, going through the options that I think make this episode so awesome. Certainly that blew me away when I was an adolescent watching this for the first time. Right. I mean, again, this this whole episode is kind of the the Picard and uh, Dathan show. Dathan is the name of the other Tamarian character here that we don't get that till the end. Um, and it's really amazing to kind of both watch him try to figure this out so genuinely. I mean, we're just watching two people who really genuinely and generously are just trying to figure it out and find it important to try to figure out how to communicate and just give so much trust. Um, though Picard doesn't start with a lot of trust, but he really just shines thinking thinking through this. And it's such a strange thing because it makes me wonder what I would do in that situation, not in terms of what I think it is a threat or not, but in terms of if my goal here is to figure out communication, it's kind of like Picard has to talk out loud to himself about it, but he also knows that Dathan can't understand anything he's saying. So every time he's like, is it this? Is it that? Is it this? Like he knows it, it's, it can't be heard or understood, right? His questions are just like rhetorical <laughs> completely. Um, and yet so aimed at togetherness. Yeah, the Tamarian captain can't understand what Picard is saying any better than Picard can understand him. It's, it's, you know, as you suggested earlier, right, if we saw this from the other perspective, it would be Picard who's who's shouting gibberish in this moment. Yet, right, his actions are conveying meaning to clearly convey meaning, not just to us, the audience, but to this other character, this alien. Right. And so they are making headway here by being in this situation where they are really seeing each other and ways that you just can't do on a view screen, right? The, that they're able to inhabit the same space to appreciate each other's physicality, their their body language, and to put them you know, in the same space to give them common frames of reference and also even just shared stuff to, like, to react to, right? Like a, a burning branch to point at, to gesture at, right? To talk about, but also even just to do little subconscious things that we don't realize we're doing, like step away from, step towards, right? Uh, glance at all of these sorts of things that are actually 
a type of communication that we often don't think about. Though I think actually perhaps all of us, you know, having lived through the the pandemic, many of us having worked from home, had having meetings right through our computers in ways that where we would normally have had those meetings in person have maybe started to appreciate that better. But they are communicating with each other, even though they have not established right a, a way of doing that linguistically yet. And this is really a great way to to build trust and to promote the communication. And I, you know, obviously this does work out in this sense. So the Tamarian captain was right that this is a good idea, right? And a forced camping trip is the, uh, is the way to bond. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that depends um, <laughs> on how you look at it, um, both broadly and within the context of this episode. But there, there are a lot of, there are so many cool things to talk about here. One, I mean, you're talking about nonverbal communication. And I think that the idea of, of, um, metaphor and how metaphor is used um, and studied in psychology was an impetus for this episode, was in its own way an inspiration. Um, And I think about this a lot, too, in my work as a therapist, because there are two principles that we don't often get actively taught in school, especially since I'm a social worker. Um, Our our school-based training is shorter than a psychologist who goes through way more academic training uh, before going on the job. But Two such important parts of the job are using metaphor because it can be really hard to connect to something um, when it's like you are the center of it. So metaphors help you step outside of it and relate to it in a different way. And I got to tell you, I'm not very good with metaphors. So I'm really always trying to stretch (laughs) that muscle Um, and nonverbal communication attunement to each other, paying attention to what is not being communicated. And you can even think of the concept of, of mirroring each other, right? The way that we um, uh, instinctively kind of stand or sit or put our hand in the same place or like when you yawn, I yawn, right? These things where we are communicating non-verbally in efforts to connect with each other all the time. And in fact, that nonverbal communication facilitates way more of the connection than we're ever really aware of. Well, this has certainly been my experience in something that I'm going through right now that is new for me, which is that I've got a kid. Uh, this is the first time I've watched this episode since uh, since having a, a child. He's a little shy of a year and a half old at this point. And while well, right now his brain is on fire with language acquisition, well, what that really means for us is that he's learning words. He's learning mostly nouns, right? The words for things and is trying to communicate to us about them. Sometimes he just likes to say the words. He's excited that he has learned that there's a, a sound that goes with that thing that he can see and, and and touch and maybe hear. But also he's trying to get us to take action, right? He wants something. Uh, maybe it's he wants to be held up to the window so he can look outside and uh, look for the dog that he hears barking or the birds that he hears uh, tweeting, Things like that, or he wants, you know, the ball that he's pointing at, something like that. But he's not speaking, right? He is saying words, he is communicating to us in a language, but it's his language. He can't say m- very many words, certainly not multisyllable words with a lot of clarity. And he's got a limited range of sounds, which is simply actually because he can't actually even control his mouth the way that an adult can yet. So there are all sorts of sounds he can't make. Some of that's he doesn't have enough teeth to make those sounds. Turns out that's actually really important. And so when he's saying things to me that are new, I have to do exactly what Picard is doing in this episode, which is to try to figure out what he is saying. And of course, the stakes in that feel really high to me. Because I want 
to make sure he knows that he's communicating with me and want to encourage his language acquisition. So it, it, to me, it feels high pressure, high stakes to get it right, to understand what he's trying to say. But I have to do a lot of what Picard did in this scene, which is just like, guess, hold up things. Be like, is, is this what you're talking about? Do you mean this? You know, is this, is this what, what goes with that sound for you? And it just is really exciting, I think, for me to, to be visiting this episode now with that in mind. And also just to think that, you know, Picard and my... My 15-month-old son have a lot in common. I think you just compared yourself to Picard, to be clear. <laughs> That's fair. You're right. In this metaphor, my son is the uh, is the, the other captain. You're right. <laughs> and I'm in the role of both first officers. Listening to you, I, I thought of a, of a new appreciation for this episode that hadn't come up before. Because often when we see narratives of um, a struggle with communication particularly when um, we are encountering a new people with whom we are unfamiliar. And this is both in Star Trek and in uh, historical narratives and other kinds of movies and TV shows. We tend to have a hierarchy there, a condescension. We tend to look on the other people as if, as we are told in the beginning of this episode, they are incomprehensible or worst case, as has often happened, they are less than not as smart, not as capable, um, that it's somehow their fault they have less to give. And I was thinking about this because you're talking about your your 15-month-old kid, right? This is um, the way that we often frame uh, a childishness. We give someone childishness um, or we are not very charitable with them in terms of thinking about uh, their intelligence or capability when we can't understand them. And this episode doesn't do that. It doesn't do that at all. It doesn't say we're better than these people. We know more. Um, it's not looking down. It's it's very horizontal. Um, and in fact, I think we even get notes of admiration of how beautiful their language is and the desire to want to know it. And I hadn't realized that that was something this episode was doing and how rare that is in storytelling. Well, yeah, and especially maybe in science fiction storytelling where so much or so frequently this type of premise, this, you know, there's a, another spaceship, there are aliens, we can't communicate with them, we don't understand what they're saying, it's scary, right? The premise is either that they are a threat and we've got to figure this out, or the premise is that they don't appear to be a threat, but in fact, secretly they are, right? It turns out that uh, if you translate that cookbook, or if you translate that book called To Serve Man, it's actually a cookbook, right? That's the that's the gimmick. That's a Twilight Zone episode we need to do someday, actually. But, uh, but yeah, like, so here it's just so open, right? It's very clear to us from the start that this is going to have a good resolution and that both of these people that were watching on this planet are trying to not just communicate with each other, but to connect, right? To really meet each other in a way that is just so refreshing and just is so brimming with optimism and just positivity, right? This is, this is a worldview that I, I just wish, I wish this was, I wish Picard's world was actually the world that we all lived in. Yeah. I think that what it's brimming with, maybe what I'm trying to get at is that it's brimming with respect. Um, and I, maybe this is what I was dancing around without knowing it when I was talking about how Dathan feels so um, genuine and trustworthy that that Picard is entering this situation, and I think Dathan too, not his crew, but 
but him as a captain, he as a captain, are entering the situation with respect for one another. If you think about the way that people often conceptualize talking in their language, their their original language with someone who has learned as a second, third, fourth language that same um, original language, it's so easy to to make the person that can't communicate as well childlike um, and and to think of of them as less intelligent. Or if you've had the experience of, of being around a group of people where you don't speak the language that they speak, um, whether that's just, you know, a situation or you're traveling somewhere else, you've probably felt a little bit this of this too, like incapable, you can't communicate and and people start kind of speaking down to you um, or uh, underestimating you. Uh, and that that's not happening here. There's respect. There's you're saying something that I believe is worth hearing and and is um, intelligent and worthwhile. And I want to understand it versus something is wrong with you. I don't understand. That must be your problem. And we do this all the time. You're absolutely right. Respect is key here. This is a big part of how we other people, right? Is to say they don't speak our language, therefore they're different from us. Or they don't speak our language well, therefore they're different from us. But that almost always... And I think it's actually something that we have to actively fight against. Otherwise, it is kind of our default mode to say, I can't understand that person. Therefore, that person must be an idiot. And even our word barbarian, which is a word that we get ultimately through Latin or which is a word that we get through Latin, but ultimately really through Greek. Barbarian is literally just capturing the sound of people who don't speak Greek. It's like this is what foreigners sound like to us. They just go bar, 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 bar because they're idiots. And actually, if you think about bar, 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 bar for someone who doesn't speak our language, it's actually almost the same exact thing that we use babble for what kids do, what my son is doing right now, which is go ba, 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 because he can't say real words. And so, yeah, it is making them childlike or uh, stupid in some way. And it is not respectful. It is not a respectful way. And yeah, you're right. We get none of that here. It's it's just not here in this episode at all. They immediately respect each other and are trying to trying to establish a meaningful contact with each other as as equals, but and just as people, right? As individuals, which isn't happening on the rest of the ship, I think. And we should probably keep going in the plot because Troy and Data are a small exception to this. But by and large, the the rest of the ship is not. We're we're not really infantilizing, I think. I don't think Riker's infantilizing. Um, he's more just worried about the threat, but we're certainly not approaching this with like uh, level-headed respect. Right. I, I mean, that really is what's going on here. You're absolutely right that everyone else, all the other Starfleet characters are in that other type of science fiction story that I talked about, right? It's just Picard down on the planet who's, he's just in a totally different story than Riker is. Like they don't, they have no idea. They're in totally different stories. But uh, yeah, your suggestion that we we can continue on is probably a good one. So the next scene is Worf heading down to the planet in a shuttle. But the Tamarians are not into that idea. And they shoot at the shuttle. But they only damage the shuttle's ability to take off again. And it's clear that all they have wanted to do was disable the shuttle and, and really just to discourage this landing, to make this landing impossible and discourage further attempts. So now Riker has to go back to considering more options. And and Jordy thinks that he can get through this uh, this transporter block, but eh, it's going to take a day. Worf 
he just wants to attack the Tamarian ship because that at least would force them to stop blocking the transporter. Then they could get Picard back and go home. Riker, though, he's saving that for a last resort, right? Violence is going to be the absolute last resort here. And so, yeah, while Jordy works on getting through the block, Data and Troy are going to try to learn the Tamarian language or, or at least figure out some way to communicate with the Tamarians so that they can figure out what the heck is actually going on here, right? What story is Picard actually in right now? And then we get an entire scene of this, of Troy and Data just going over the Tamarians, talking to each other on their bridge, trying to make sense of it. And Troy has just an awesome line here about what is at stake. She says, a single word can lead to tragedy. One word, misspoken or misunderstood. And that could happen here if we fail. But they discover that there's a planet where some of the words that the Tamarians are using actually refer to something and so now they've got an angle in which is very cool and i just want to say i want this job right this is one of these stories that makes me wish that this you know, being on this ship could be my life too i mean just what an exciting scene just these two people trying to crack this language yeah it's as as you were saying that i was like yeah this is what we want to be as communication officers right but then i was like <laughs> you know there are probably linguists on this ship that they should be talking to but instead <laughs> we're looking at you know the helmsman and the counselor for this <laughs> um but although i don't know what data's official role is ops, I guess. He's, he's, he's ops yeah yeah it's all a yeah. little bit nebulous in tng i think but he's ops yeah yeah he's he's everything he's just like infinitely infinitely helpful um but yeah I, must the lower decks linguists are probably pretty upset right now like um (laughs) literally this is our job this is why we're here how come nobody is asking us and you're right that Riker isn't necessarily treating the situation with respect it's interesting right he doesn't want to turn to violence but his he seems to be only able to think of these people as potential threats right in this very violent thing this is the the undertone of the whole episode and there are several comments on it are like we don't want to accidentally start a war and this idea that one misstep could cause a war could cause tragedy we even see earlier in uh in the show in the next generation with the first season episode which glenn you love because it's the first dixon hill episode (laughs) uh, the big goodbye where picard is practicing this language because if he gets the pronunciation of something wrong um there are going to be dire consequences for for the contact Um, and the diplomacy between these people, right? So we have a crew that went through that. Um, And we see this too on Voyager. Um, I forget which episode it is, but the one with the gestural language um, and people get very upset when the gestures are wrong. We see this on Enterprise. I think... um, uh, Captain Archer's dog, Porthos, pees on a tree, <laughs> and this is like deeply upsetting and it ruins the first contact. And like, so this is something we see in Trek all the time. And to your point earlier, we also see in Trek all the time somebody kidnapped the captain and he's going to have to fight to survive and we have to get him back. And you mentioned the episode Arena. Like, it's very difficult not to think of Kirk and Gorn um, in this episode. And the fact that every alien planet in TOS and TNG is actually just a location within or right outside of Los Angeles and Southern <laughs> California. So the landscapes look really similar. Like the visual imagery um, tells us that it might be the same. Um, it, it's, it's interesting because when 
we're following Picard through this episode. So it's really easy to be like, what is up with everybody else? They need to calm down. But when we think about what everyone else is going through, that might be what we're would would be otherwise primed to think based on what we know about sci-fi, about Trek, um, and about other kinds of first contacts. So this is, I think, the seventh contact um, in in the Trek universe. So it's a really interesting juxtaposition there. And, you know, as I was prepping for the episode two, I was curious about the location. I was wondering uh, if Arena and Darmok were filmed in the same location. They are not. Darmok is filmed in Bronson Canyon, which is uh, in LA, and and Arena is filmed in the Vasquez Rocks um, Park uh, outside of LA. But I did find while I was looking that up, lots of Picard foreshadowing here that um, the new Picard show, Picard, it's so hard because we call him by his name all the time. The new Picard show, Picard, um, films in Vasquez Rocks as well. And Vasquez Rocks plays a big part in the films. And so this is a very, a very Trek centric location. I think there's even a little like Trek historic area that you can visit if you stop by this park. Yeah, this is not a part of the world that I've been to very much. And so I've never had the opportunity to do that. But it is is one of the things if I'm ever in LA for, you know, more than a, a weekend, it's it's high on my list of places to go. And uh, boy, that would be that would be fun to do. I mean, it's definitely on my uh, my bucket list, I guess. I want to circle back, Valerie, to your invocation of the the big goodbye here, because I don't know that we actually see at all what Riker is up to while Jordy's off trying to figure out how to get through this transporter block and Data and Troy are doing this thing. So I want to believe here that there are actually just some deleted scenes where Troy tells Riker that he needs to go take a break on the holodeck. And yeah, Riker's in another Dixon Hill story. Like that's that's the fan fiction I'm going to go write about this episode. For some reason, too, my my fixation in this episode was about the really stark contrast between um, how Picard is approaching this and how the crew is approaching this. And my friend, too, was really struck by this. I mean, again, this was her first Trek episode she'd ever seen. She doesn't know these characters. And she walked away being like, I hate everyone on the ship. <laughs> they don't make any <laughs> sense to me. Picard's the only good character here. And so, you know, I was trying to explain that as as well developed as our characters get to be, that because of the episodic, you know, mini teleplay nature of the show, often the characters' personalities uh, and traits can be tossed aside to serve a plot, right? And the the fact that we just need the people on the ship to misunderstand and try to get Picard back and how that fuels the plot is just part of telling the story. And it's not really... Uh, none of the characters on the Enterprise are shining as themselves, with the exception of of Worf, who is still being reduced to he wants to shoot phasers and they won't let him. But I had also been talking before we watched the episode to my friend. You know, she said, what do I need to know? We're jumping into season six here. And I was like, you don't need to know anything. This is a super episodic show. I can tell you some basic things about how Star Trek works. But like, this isn't serialized. We don't We don't need to know. And then when we got to the end of the episode, I thought, you know what we do need to know? We need to know about Locutus of Borg. We need to remember that Picard was kidnapped by a hostile alien race and traumatized and is still suffering PTSD, as is the rest of the crew and especially Riker for, you know, the guilt he carries around that he kind of let that happen. Right. And I think the crew has all of that. 
And when you read how the crew on the Enterprise is reacting to what's going on, not just through the lens of arena and plot points we expect, but through the lens of trauma and, oh, my God, somebody took Picard again and he's in danger, the, it, it all does start to make a different kind of sense. Wow. Yeah, that I, I've never thought about that while watching this episode. But yeah, absolutely. Of course it does. They've been here before. They've been here before. And in that situation, Riker was prepared to have to fire on Picard, to have to kill Picard and take over the ship. So th- this has to be a nightmare scenario for absolutely every single one of them. I think that this season here, right, season five, is a big part of Picard's healing from that moment. Of course, we do then see him struggling with it very much in the film First Contact. But this is the season where right, we get inner lights. He learns to play the flute. He has a family that's so important to who he is from there on out. But I think this episode also is a big step in that direction. We're going to see more about that, certainly as we, we get further into the episode. And there is, of course, going to be some more trauma here. And that's actually even in some ways the, the, the beat, maybe not trauma, but grief certainly is going to be the beat that we end on. But I think that you're right to point to where Picard is in his character arc here, which is, you know, something, yeah, famously, we don't really think that much about with TNG. And definitely, I would say this is an episode that I would give to someone who's never watched Star Trek before. This would be on my sort of short list of great entry points of episodes. But there is a level here, a layer here, where we can appreciate what Picard and everyone else is going through if we know about this. And uh, that's a great observation I had not thought about. But that really opens this episode up for me. But let's uh, let's get into the next scene. It, it is morning on the planet now, and the Tamarian captain is gone, but he's left some of his stuff near his fire pit. Picard finds a, a notepad. There's some writing on it. He, he actually calls it a captain's log. And this script in this notebook, it is very cool, but we don't actually get much time to look at it because the Tamarian captain comes running out of some bushes and he's shouting, Darmok, Darmok. And Picard thinks that he's mad that his privacy has been invaded. And when he tries to give the a dagger to Picard, Picard here still thinks that this is going to be about fighting each other. But then there's a roar, right? There's a dragon or a lion or something out there, just like Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra. And in this case, it's, uh, it's, it's actually a dude in like a triceratops mask with a cloaking device, and it is stalking them while fading in and out. And this lets them now really communicate because the Tamarian captain knows what is going on and he's got a plan, but Picard keeps doing dumb things that clearly frustrate him. So he tries to explain his plan to Picard, who finally gets it, right? This is how you communicate, he says, by citing example, by metaphor, right? He shouts. There's a lot of great shouting in this in this scene, like shoutings of like one or two words. And so together they put the plan into action. But just as the fight is getting going, the Enterprise decides to try to beam Picard off the planet because Jordy's done his job here. But Jordy's actually not done his job well enough, so they don't succeed. But Picard is frozen by the attempt as he temporarily materializes on the Enterprise and then sort of blinks back to the planet and and so on. And what this means is that the Tamarian captain has been left to fight the monster alone. And when the Enterprise gives up trying to beam Picard up, Picard finds the Tamarian captain very badly wounded. So this is really a defeat out of the jaws of victory situation here. 
and it it's pretty heartbreaking, but it is also a really great storytelling beat in that it has raised the stakes for their communication now. Yeah, I am really... I feel complicated about the idea of the way that Dathan interacts with sacrifice in this episode. Um, and it it serves it serves the plot and it's beautiful and I'm just I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like it. Well, it is it is crushing. And of course, I, I guess there's another thing that happens here, right, with this defeat in terms of how the story functions. Thinking of this maybe with my my writer's hat on a little bit, is that this is something that's actually helpful for us to even really double down on our own empathy for this alien character who we still can't really understand, uh, at least not in a kind of complex way. But we'll 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 see how this goes. We, we're getting another scene on the Enterprise now before we get back to the planet. So this scene on the Enterprise is a meeting in the conference room. There is no way to make any more attempts to rescue Picard at this point, uh, at least any way that is you know short of attacking the Tamarian ship. Even doing that is going to be really tough. And so Riker wants to try to talk to them again, talk to the Tamarians. Troy and Data have actually learned a lot about the Tamarian language. And here is where we get the explanation, right? They explain to us now in... I will have to say, just it's one of my favorite scenes. This is one of my favorite scenes in all of Star Trek. This really is just a bunch of nerds talking about a new language they're learning. It's like you know the exact plot of my my life, and it's just uh, it's just awesome. But the deal is that the Tamarians do indeed communicate by metaphor. Their language is made up entirely of references to their shared mytho-historical stories. That's the, the terminology used in the episode here. They describe their feelings, their intentions, desires, plans, their ideas, and so on by referring to incidents and episodes in those stories. And Troy gives the example of what that would mean here, right? She says, what would it mean for someone to say Juliet on her balcony? And for us, right, that calls up images of romance, but only because we know the source material. If we didn't know Romeo and Juliet, then that phrase would be meaningless. It would just mean nothing to us. And this is just so very, very cool, right? I just think this is awesome. There are some criticisms that we could make about how this language actually would work. I, I think it's worth making those criticisms. But before we do that, I think let's just talk about how cool and exciting this is. I thought it was really, really, really fun. And the the definitions and the explanation and this little scene in the observation lounge, um, I was hooked the same way that you that you were, Glenn, and for the same the same reasons. It's such a cool concept for a language. It definitely um makes me think though about the way this common trek thing of um, you know, treating an entire planet the way we might treat um, one culture, right? Like the, the, we live on an earth made of many, <laughs> many, many cultures um, with many, many, many different mythologies. We don't have one shared mythology as Terrans. And it's interesting to think of, of a planet or our own future, maybe where we do have a shared mythology. And I want to say a little bit more about this as we as we get to to the end, but it I almost wish they had been able to do we'd been able to see more about this problem because I was left a little confused about why they can't look up these stories, right? Because in the in the data and Troy scene, the computer seems to know 
who Darmok is and what Tanagra is because they're mythologies from Chantil 3, I think it is. So the computer knows that. Maybe the computer has some books about Chantil 3 or they could do this with all the other names and people that they heard in this clip um, from, you know, that they recorded of the view screen of the of the Tamarians talking on the bridge. I feel like we do have access to this information, this idea that like, nope, we don't know the stories and we can't get them. So we don't know what anything means felt a little odd to me. I I agree. There's a lot that's unexplained here. It was unclear to me just at all where Chantil 3 is. It's obviously not the planet that these people are from. So why are there mythohistorical stories even about some other planet was a, a, a question that I, I had. And yeah, why then, if they know, have these entries, if they know about these things, why is that there? Why is there not more in the Enterprise computer about this that they can't pull up any of these texts? Because absolutely, right, they could pull up, you know, the text of Romeo and Juliet. Uh, we're going to see clearly they can pull up all sorts of texts. Actually, we're going to see that earlier, all sorts of mytho historical texts or just, you know, earlier literature they can pull up and could presumably do that for every species in the Federation and probably, you know, for Klingons as well. Maybe less so for Romulans, actually. That's maybe an interesting thing to think about. But yeah, they should be able to have access to more of this if they were able to get any information at all to crack that. Though I'm willing to overlook that and just say like, we just don't have enough information to understand what's going on there. And I guess really my my criticism of the way that this is portrayed here is that, I guess really something you were pointing to, Valerie, is that right there should be texts of these stories that our crew can go read or that anyone could read, right? That someone could read, right? That these are stories that are written down. And so the Tamarians have to have a language that allows them to read these texts in the first place that then they are using to communicate. And so it almost presupposes that there are two different forms of language here, right? Because the original language that these stories are written down in is not this language, it's not going to be this metaphor. These stories have to actually be written in such a way that like there's verb usage and stuff in order for them to understand what's going on. So I don't really know how this would work. And I, you know, I wish that, that we had someone, uh, you know, with an actual linguistics PhD on the show to, to have some you know technical vocabulary here and walk us through uh, how this might work. But it does not seem to me that this is really tenable, that there really could be someone out there using a language like this in this way anyway. Right. We just want like a future lake film or maybe we want a serialized uh, TNG uh, season that is just this. We follow the the plot point is the, the mystery is or the big bad is that we don't know how this language works. I would I would watch that. show. Oh, my God. Star Trek colon linguists. Uh, none of these measly 10 episode, 13 episode seasons either. I want 26 freaking episodes, seven seasons worth of Star Trek colon linguists. I mean, each season is just cracking a new alien language oh no i just want this one just this one just the tamarians and like we have scenes where we were going to to alien planets and recovering texts from monasteries and i I want a whole thing i just want this yeah i mean this is season one that's what you're pitching i'm just saying i want six more seasons after that (laughs) i'm I'm, I'm dreaming big here hoagland i'm dreaming big (laughs) all right well back on the planet the monster is gone but the tamarian captain as we said is is wounded. He's gravely wounded. He's not going to make it out of this episode. And Picard, uh, he's able to get a fire going and he tries to care for the captain as, as much as he can. And they talk. In this scene, it's, it's going to be sad because he's going to die in this scene. But this scene is also just 
very cool because now we get the Tamarian telling the story of Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra without using any verbs. It's just proper nouns and prepositions. That's how this language functions here. While Picard tries to illustrate what he's understanding by drawing in the, the dirt. And the story is that Darmok and Jalad each separately wound up on the island of Tanagra. They had to fight a monster. And in doing so, they became friends, right? They became friends by going through hardship together, which, hey, is what these two have been doing. It was the, the plan, right? This is what the Tamarian captain intended. And this is just so awesome to me. It's hard, I think, actually, for me, even really to articulate the extent to which and maybe also precisely how this scene excites me so much. But it does. It blew my mind up when I was an adolescent, and it still gets me every time to see these people trying to communicate in this way. I just love it. I mean, it's a beautiful scene. It's so intimate. And they build the intimacy in in other ways throughout the episode. You know, one of the little details that we didn't talk about was when uh, Dathan is, is getting ready to go to sleep, he does this little ritual of placing items around his campfire. And um, my assumption is that that has some sort of spiritual meaning or maybe it's protective in some way, but it's it's some important ritual. And we get these beautiful details and two people trying to show love to one another over a campfire is just, you know, platonically romantic as all heck and is just platonically romantic in a, in a really beautiful way. But I want to know more about Teenage Glenn. What, what blew up your mind here? What do you mean by that? Well, of course, the whole episode is doing this for me, but just over and over, right? This episode showing how a person goes about learning a language, which was just not something that I had a lot of experience with at this point, and certainly was not something that had ever been presented to me as being exciting, as being fun. The way that people talked about, you know, in high school, you're going to have to take a foreign language as a language requirement was as like a burden, as kind of like a hoop to jump through, just something to that you have to do that isn't going to be any fun. There was no one really, you know, around me at this point that modeled to me that doing this sort of thing could be really exciting. This is not the only place I was getting it. I was reading a lot of science fiction stories at this point. The Lord of the Rings had maybe already ignited some of this spark for me. Also at church, I had you know become aware of the fact that, hey, the Bible's not actually written in English and that it's just a translation that you're reading and that there might be some nuances to the original language that are lost in that translation. The, all of those things were happening for me at the exact same time. And of course, I have gone on to spend a good chunk of my adult life immersed in other languages and trying to, th to think about other languages and being interested in other cultures, hearing people speak their languages, learning dead languages, doing exactly this kind of thing that Picard is 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 doing doing here. Of course, that's how you and I met. That's the literal origin story, right, of of this very show, this very podcast is can be traced to this, right? And so I was yeah, I'm so grateful for that. I like how it became a story about us. <laughs> Valerie and Glenn on the internet. Or Valerie and Glenn in Toronto. Well, we are coming up actually on the uh, the ten year anniversary of that, so uh, maybe we should actually film like a little play about that and only do it in this type of language. I think there's a big audience for that. I mean, the last time we had a self indulgent miniature photo shoot in Toronto, it ended up being in the same place that was a location for a monastery in Star Trek Discovery. So 
<laughs> I That's think true. we have a good track record here. Uh, 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 you're right. So we're doing this. I don't know. We're going to put this on the internet. Stand by. Stand by. Or run away. You know, but uh, one of those two things. Well, it is now Picard's turn here. The Tamarian wants a story as well. And I think this really speaks to the the, the word that you used to describe this, Valerie, that I, I think, again, I, I missed, right? But intimacy, right? That now it's Picard's turn to tell a story. They're sharing here. And so Picard tells the story of Gilgamesh and Enkidu. This is uh, one of the oldest written stories that we have, uh, oldest written human stories. And the oldest complete version of Gilgamesh, which is an epic poem, the oldest complete version of this dates from around 1100 BC, though we do actually have fragments of versions that are a few hundred years older than that. And then even older than that, we actually have some artistic depictions of scenes from this story. So it's old. It's been around for a while. And and now we get Picard trying to remember the story and to give the Tamarian a sort of short prose version of it. And that is just fantastic as, as well. And hey, look, Picard is using verbs here. In fact, lots of verbs because... That's actually how our language functions. Maybe it's how you know, most languages function. But he is also trying to speak the way that the Tamarians do with just names and prepositions. And the Tamarian seems to be following along here. He nods, he even laughs at, at moments. And of course, the story is essentially the same as Darmok and Jalad. It's about two hunters or maybe two warriors becoming friends. But the third part of the epic of Gilgamesh is actually about how Gilgamesh deals with the death of his friend Enkidu. And just as Picard narrates the death of Enkidu, the death from his injuries in battle, the Tamarian dies from his own injuries in battle. It's a touching scene. It was going to be a touching scene, sort of no matter what story Picard told here. But of course, right, the fact that Picard is essentially telling their story, that they've actually both told a story that is very similar, even though they're from totally different cultures, totally different species, have similar stories. And it's a story that they also have essentially just enacted themselves. It really emphasizes the the bond that they have here, right? The intimacy of this connection that they have made here on this planet, essentially reenacting these mytho-historical stories. And it's it's brilliant. It is also heartbreaking. Those themes of of generosity and communication and respect are so present here. Even just this very compassionate and and empathetic act that Picard does of trying to tell this story in the same way, right? With the same kind of um, construction of, of, of the sentence, which, you know, gives way a little bit as um, Picard gets tired and as Dathan um, fades, Picard starts to speak a little bit more like he's speaking English um, than that he's speaking Tamarian. And it was just really cool to see an entire episode that was about trying to find what is in common, right? I mean, we see this of like, we are held together by what we would call our humanity. Um, and and that holds us together even with non-humans, right? Um, and we really, that's something that comes up in Trek all the time. And we see that so beautifully done in this scene. And to see that we can share something, that there are um, mythological commonalities, which there are. Um, and that's the thing I would like to know more about. There are lots of people that study that. Um, but we have a lot of kind of shared themes in the various mythologies um, on, on our planet. 
And yeah, I don't know, just beautiful, cool. I don't have to make a decision about whether or not somebody should die or live in a transporter accident. So I feel like I have a little bit of a break. This <laughs> is a great episode. Something that I did just say in the last episode that we recorded is that uh, I, I spoke for both of us, which was probably unfair, but I said that, you know, we go to Star Trek for perhaps principally for these ethical dilemmas, right? To, to help us think through how we ought to live in the world, how we ought to behave in the world. And that is true for me. That is one of the things certainly that I absolutely love about Star Trek, but also these high concept science fiction stories that get me to think about what the world even is to begin with, what it means to be a, a, a person, right? How we can even interact with each other, what language is, are, are just as important. And in fact, we're probably more important to me, you know, in my first watch of this live, you know, the show airing live when I was uh, an early adolescent, that was so, so, so important to me. And one of the things that we get just as the subtext here in this in this episode is that the, the, the two layers of stories here, the three stories that we get, right, the story of the episode that we're watching, then the story of Darmok and Jalad, and then also the story of Gilgamesh and Enkidu are at their core about friendship. And one of the things that we see here is simply that other cultures also have the concept of friendship, right? And have uh, an impulse to want to protect other people from a, a danger, if you can, right? And that if your culture has a concept of friendship and my culture has a concept of friendship, then even though we are actually both barbarians to each other in the sense that our languages just sound like bar, 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 we can be friends with each other. We can do that. We can find a way to do that. And here it is just shown to us, right? We get this play that shows us this. And it's not just then an important and cool high concept science fiction story. It is also an important moral lesson for people. But all right, we do still have one last scene here. It's going to be a heavy scene again. Picard is burying the Tamarian captain, or he's getting ready to, I guess. But the, the monster is back and, and getting closer, right? So there's danger here again. The Enterprise is tracking all of this, and Riker decides that it is time to get Picard out of there. And so now... It is the last resort. They attack the Tamarian ship, which does have to drop its screen of the planet here, and Picard is beamed out just in time. The Tamarians return fire. The Enterprise is clearly outmatched here, by the way, which is something we've kind of known throughout the episode, but we're really seeing here that the Tamarians have a more powerful ship than, than the Enterprise. But Picard gets to the bridge, he hails the Tamarians, and now he's able to communicate with them using their own language, right? using their own metaphors. Picard tells the Tamarian first officer, eh, shut up and listen. And then he tells them that he and their captain fought the beast, but they failed and their captain died. But they did become friends before he died. And he actually has the captain's notebook, this captain's log here, which the Tamarians beam over to their ship and examine. They, they look through it. And it's his log. And so now the first officer says, Picard and Dathan at Eladrell. And so this is where we learn the captain's name, that we, we've been using it a little bit throughout the episode. Uh, and it also seems here at this point, right, that now this story is going to become a new metaphor for the Tamarians. And this scene ends with Picard holding up his Tamarian dagger and saying, Tamba, his arms open. And that's it. The Tamarians leave. The Enterprise can get on its way as well. But we do actually have one final scene, an, an epilogue. 
Picard is in his ready room. He's reading a book on the couch when Riker comes in with the damage report. Uh, the book is the Homeric Hymns. We're going to nerd out about that in a minute. But this scene is really so that Picard can comment that Dathan was willing to die so that his people could establish contact with the Federation, uh, so that his people could make a connection with new people. And when Riker leaves, Picard picks up the dagger and he looks out the window and then makes the mourning gesture that we actually saw the Tamarians make. And I think this is just a great ending to this story, right? Picard thinking about the friend that he made and thinking about how to honor that short friendship, how to honor Dathan's sacrifice by carrying on with the Enterprise's mission of exploration and, and peaceful contact, right? That Picard sort of rededicating his life to the mission that he is on here because of this experience. And it's a, it's a great last scene. It's a great last shot. Yeah, I think... You know, I, I want to nerd out um, about Homer, and and I don't want to dwell too much on on this criticism. And I think we've we've captured it in other ways, but it really does strike me how alone Picard seems to be in this. Um, you know, in this scene, Riker comes in and 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 he's like, "What are you doing? What, why are you reading this? Why are you reading Greek? Why are you reading Homer?" <laughs> and Picard is like, because all these like super important reasons, I was extremely touched and moved by this really intimate and tragic thing that just happened. And Riker's like, okay, bye. Um, And it just doesn't seem quite like what I think Riker would do or what I want him to do or the other intimate scenes that we see between Picard and Riker um, in this ready room. And and I, I thought that was strange to make this only important to Picard rather than something that's like a grief and a respect and um and a a solemnity that like the rest of the the bridge crew gets to join him in that's a really great observation and uh, you know there is certainly a sense in which that's just what the story needs to be which you brought up already the way that these characters can be a little flexible from episode to episode to serve the needs of the short story that our writers are trying to tell us with iconic characters from week to week but i do also think that you know, we can make this fit with the wider arc of Picard, which is that this is still before Inner Light. This is still before he goes off and has an entire imaginary life where he has a family and a, and a lifelong friend and comes back to the Enterprise feeling the absence of that in his own life. So we can see this as a beat on that journey that, you know, we get to towards the end or middle part of, of the fifth season here. But also, to be fair to the, the rest of the crew, right, they, they are having to repair the ship. There is this damage report. Picard is clearly recovering from the incident here. And while the red, the crew is doing those repairs and so on. And, uh, you know, it's possible that 30 minutes from now, he's actually got an appointment with Deanna Troy that we just don't we just don't see in this episode because certainly we do see throughout the the series that she really is someone he leans on that he does go to her in her capacity as counselor to deal with his his traumas and his griefs and his other emotions so i'd like to think that he's got an appointment that's fair that's generous i mean if we're supposed to learn something from this episode well many things one of them is to be generous so i'll do it Fine. <laughs> and just to, to wrap up that thought, just simply because I wish I'd thought of it before, is hey, that is actually kind of the last scene of this entire TV show is Picard showing up at the poker game and Riker saying you were always welcome. Actually, that's a really good point. And I had forgotten that Inner Light is after this because 
there there is something about the way that Picard is uniquely and deeply affected um, and had this solitary but really life-changing and moving and character-defining experience um, that reminded me uh, of Inner Light. Um, and so maybe it is important that that we think a little bit too about not just that the crew is not behaving how we want them to behave, but about this as a beat in in Picard's loneliness in a way, right? That that he that starts with the Borg, right? With this experience of having been kidnapped um, and manipulated and traumatized by the Borg. Yeah, I, yeah, that's, a, that's such a great observation that you had earlier in this episode, right? I mean, I think if we were going to compile, and there is no reason to ever do this, right? But if we were going to compile an essentials list, like an essential Captain Picard, Jean-Luc Picard, like a story, here's his arc, this is an episode that has to be in it, I think. And I think that part of this, too, will also be Chain of Command, which we're going to get in season six. Which is when, you know, there are four lights, um, that episode, um, when Picard again is uh, taken hostage uh, and and tortured by the Cardassians. So, yeah, there's a lot of, and Picard is a lonely character, right? In a lot of ways, especially in terms of relationship. Um, But he's made lonely through these experiences, which I think is very different than, you know, Kirk Spock Bones, where they're almost always bonding the three of them more and more and more through their individual experiences or through Kirk's experiences. Absolutely. In fact, while you were talking about the the campfire scene that we get in this episode, you made such a great point near the end that that's what I responded to. But before, while you were sort of halfway through what you were saying there, the thing I wanted to jump on was how this is actually my second favorite campfire scene in Star Trek because my absolute favorite campfire scene in Star Trek and one of my favorite scenes in Star Trek period is the beginning of Star Trek V, the one where they go find God that just opens with Kirk and Spock and Bones camping in Yosemite and being friends, right? And that really, to me, captures the essence of what the original series is, and maybe especially what the original series film series is, which is a show about friends, about friendship. And yeah, the contrast, right? One of the many contrasts between Kirk and Picard is that Picard is alone. And yeah, this emph- this episode really does emphasize and, and highlight that in ways that I, I didn't really think as much about before we got on the air to do this episode. So this has been uh, this has been really awesome for me. You want to talk about Homer? Uh, yeah, I absolutely do. I totally want to go back to this book that Picard has. So uh, one, let's just say what it is. It's the Homeric Hymns. This is a collection of hymns to ancient Greek gods. Uh, we call them Homeric. They've been ascribed to Homer, who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, though they're not actually written by Homer. They are quite old. They're, they're not written by the same person who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. They're actually a few centuries younger than that. Like we know that through linguistics, but people in antiquity didn't necessarily uh, know that. Of course, actually, we don't even necessarily agree on whether or not the Iliad and the Odyssey were actually written by the same person, though by convention, we say all of these things are written by Homer. Anyway, point is, there's these cool hymns. They're where we get a lot of the famous stories from Greek mythology. But what really matters here, Valerie, is that Picard is actually reading a physical book in ancient Greek with scholarly footnotes in English. So I guess we're meant to understand that Picard learned ancient Greek at the Academy and like he can cite read ancient Greek. I mean, this is, I don't know if he learned it at the Academy. I think this is just a feature of Picard, we, we, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> he was born knowing this language. 
Yeah, like this is what he he does. Like it's like you know he's a a doctoral student in his spare time, basically. <laughs> like that's his like side hobby. Um, he's you know, I think with with the character of Picard, they they often draw on um the Western canon, right? Um, and and his deep knowledge of and and reverence for that canon. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I just love the idea that he's sitting here doing this. And, you know, he could have just done this in English or, or French, which I guess is actually his native language. Uh, but no, he's just going to sight read the ancient Greek. And of course, he does tell Riker that what he's trying to do is connect with their own mytho-historical roots. But I think also the fact that he wants to read this in a language that is, one, not his language, and two, is, of course, the native language of the people who wrote these things, you know, tells us that he really is thinking very deeply about his experience with Dathan, the experience of having to learn this other language, right? That it's important to meet people in their own language rather than through translation. And I think it's just a really beautiful and really brilliant touch here, though also just tells us so much about what a nerd Picard is. Uh, and uh, I love that as well. But also, I have a question about like the physicality of this book. Do you think that he just has this book in the ready room? Like this is just he just had this on hand. I would love to know how libraries work um, <laughs> um, in the future, but also um, on the Enterprise, because we often see scenes of Picard uh, lounging with with a book, but we never see like a shelf of books uh, in, in his quarters or anywhere else. So I wonder if we're just supposed to believe that he he has the book, the replicator give him the book and then he sends the matter, you know, he recycles the book. So I think maybe we're meant to believe that by and large, you ask the replicator for a book and then you recycle it back into the replicator. But we also see that Picard um, keeps uh, objects, right? Has a really intimate connection to certain objects in his space. And you would think books would be a big part of that. He has the Globe Illustrated Shakespeare on display in a glass case in his ready room for a chunk of TNG. Hilarious to me, Glenn, that you didn't already know Picard was a nerd uh, <laughs> uh, from that and from uh, from his weird interest in uh, archaeology and also, you know, Dixon Hill. <laughs> um, uh, but uh but yeah, I don't know. I, I would love to know how books work. <laughs> yeah, well, I think your impulse here is is right. I think that he has replicated this book. And, you know, we see other people reading, you know, not just on TNG, but we see this on, on Voyager and Deep Space Nine as well. We see people reading books. Sometimes they're books like real books from our past uh, or they're made up books from the future and so on. But people are usually reading them on their pads. People basically are just getting ebooks, you know, from the like ship or station library or, you know, whatever. But here's where Picard is just, I think, so awesome. He's like my, he's just totally my hero is that he could do that too. He's got a pad. He could just call it up on the pad and read it, but he doesn't want to do that. He wants to read a physical book. So he has the replicator make it for him. Then when he's done, he's going to put it back in the replicator and that matter will go make something else for, you know, somebody, I don't know, Troy's going to eat that as ice cream when he's done with it, essentially is what's going to happen here. And uh, I think that's cool that he he wants the tactile experience of, of, of connecting with the book in that way way. And again, I think you're right to point to the fact that he is an archaeologist and that he has a real emotional attachment to objects. We actually see that in this scene with the dagger. He is keeping this this dagger, 
from Dathan, right? This is this is in the ready room as something he wants to see from time to time. He's going to do that with the flute coming up. He is uh, in season six going to get uh, an object from actually his uh, archaeology professor at the academy. That's going to become a big feature of the ready room as well. All right, the Picard does like to surround himself with objects that have meaning for him, like emotional weight for him. And so it's maybe no surprise that he wants the the tactile sensation of the books, even if he is just going to put it back in the replicator when he's done. Yeah, he even gives his um, son, not not his son, <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the man who turns out not to be his son, uh, one of one of the artifacts, archaeological artifacts in his quarters. Um, there's an early scene in that episode where his not son picks it up and asks about it. And as they part, Picard gives this as a gift. Um, so you can really see the the meaning that, that he um, imbues objects with um, as a way of uh, connection, intimacy and respect. These other themes that we see so, so much in this episode from him. And one last thing I, I wanted to say about, about this scene and the Greek and Gilgamesh that isn't really a criticism, but is like a hope for Trek of the future in the spirit of infinite diversity and infinite combinations is, is to dive more into the mythologies and canonical texts and important works of other cultures, cultures that aren't just, uh, you know, predominantly white Western cultures, right? We think of Greek um as as you know Picard says here the thing right um our history but when you look at what we're meant to believe about who's serving on this ship I don't know if that's true if it's everybody's history right and there could be really cool opportunities to bring in other forms of 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 earth culture mythology or language or story or history or connection into future Trek shows. I would even like to see more of this from Klingons, more of this from Vulcans, more of this from Trill. I think that would be a, a, a cool place to go. I agree. One of the things that is always a little bit, you know, funny in a kind of tongue-in-cheek way with Star Trek, maybe like especially the original series, is how even all of Spock's cultural references are to human history and human culture, and and not to to Vulcan stuff. And of course, that's because right, we're the we're the audience. But absolutely, I would love to see Star Trek introducing more of the the deep cultural legacy of you know not just. Greek and Rome, but ancient India, ancient Persia, ancient China, and so on into the show. I'm interested in that stuff. Star Trek's a way that I learned about a lot of this stuff. This is this was the first time I ever heard of the Homeric Hymns, was watching this episode when I was uh, about 12, I suppose. And that is a great service that I think this franchise performs for people. And it would be so awesome to diversify and expand that from the, from the sort of realism standpoint of telling us more about our own story, our own human story. But also, yeah, I'm with you. I want more Klingon stuff and more Vulcan stuff. I want to see that get expanded. I would love to see, especially the Federation maybe get Get, get more expanded, more built, get the world of the Federation built more, where we get like Telluride stories, we learn more about their culture and, and Dorians and so on as the show goes on. I, I, I do hope that as, yeah, as the series, as the franchise goes on, that we get more of that. Well, in the spirit of imbuing things with meaning, I think it is time for us to invent a cocktail for this episode. And uh, we wanted to take a cue from the episode here and not actually come with one ready. We do usually assign this to one of us who then presents it to the other, but we thought it would be more fun to uh, metaphorically sit around our campfire and work it out together. So I will just pitch to you, Valerie, kind of first question, just what do you think is a good base spirit for this episode and why? 
Yeah, I think we need two base spirits. <laughs> I think yes. we need to have you have one and I have one. Um, and I think we already have a great title for for this drink, which is you know Valerie and Glenn in Toronto or uh, Valerie and Glenn on the air. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I think that if we're going with the spirit of like what what I want to bring to this and what you want to bring to this, maybe we should just go to the things that are important to each of us separately. Oh, I think that's a great idea, but I still, uh, I want to defer to you to start with naming the first liquor here. So we'll start by saying that I bring to the campfire, to to the little table next to the campfire, a little bar cart next to the campfire, a, a bottle of Green Hook Gin, which is a gin that I really like that is made in Brooklyn where I live. So that's our first ingredient. Yes, of course. It has to be gin from you. And my base spirit is is going to be a brown liquor, an aged liquor, but, you know, has to be. But I'm actually going to go with brandy here. Uh, I prefer Armagnac to cognac in most instances, though, you know, uh, it is a shame that cognac is just much easier to get. So that can uh, that can do if you're trying to, to replicate this at home. But yeah, so that's what I'm going to bring is some, some Armagnac or some brandy. I think that a suggestion I might make if we're thinking about the campfire is, is we think of uh, maybe something a little bit smoky in some way, if there's a way to bring that element to the ingredients we already put on the table, or if we just think of something we want to drink around a campfire as our general vibe. I absolutely agree. So one of the things that I love about brandy so much is that I actually find brandy to be a really warming spirit. And so I was kind of going for the sense of like the warmth of the fire there. But I also, look, you don't ever have to talk me into a smoky drink like that's. I think I I was trying to spare you from that. So I think actually what I would add to this to add a little bit of smoke, and and I really mean little bit because I know you're not actually going to like what I'm about to say, but uh, I would put just a tiny bit, like maybe a quarter teaspoon of Ardbeg scotch uh, in this. I think that's very reasonable. And, you know, we have um, a similar drink in our shared histories. I, I made a, a version of it for your wedding party um, when I was bartending because it's a it's a drink that I had in Berlin at a time when I was supposed to meet you there, but you had to leave right. early. And so I went to this bar we were supposed to go to alone and I couldn't read German. So I didn't really know what was in the drink I was ordering. And um, I got a gin and lemon based drink. But when I went to go taste it, all I could taste was scotch. And it turned out I had accidentally ordered a drink that is a gin and lemon based drink that's topped with just a tiny bit of scotch. And I thought that was perfect because it reminded me so much of you. So if we can bring that element in here, absolutely wonderful. All right. Yeah, I think it's perfect. So what else do you want to put in this? The idea of warmth makes me think about spice. Uh, cinnamon is the first thing that that comes to mind, but anything in the the category of warming spices, maybe um, some cardamom bitters. Oh yeah, cardamom bitters is a good idea. Of course, you you and I have played around with those before. I also just was thinking drambuie, which is like a, a, an allspice liqueur. Oh, that would be great. Yeah, I like that. So I think even just with what we've got on the table here, I think we can actually assemble this. And of course, when we actually do assemble it, we'll probably totally change our mind. It's pretty rare to have like the sort of first go of a drink be the thing. But, you know, if and of course, eventually, hopefully we will be able to tinker around with this drink in person. And I would love to hear if listeners do and and to let us know their thoughts. But here is what just I conceive of here with these ingredients, Valerie, is something like uh, two and a half 
parts of gin. I think gin is really the true base spirit of this drink. And then I would go with maybe like a half part or a three quarters part of the 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 brandy, the Armagnac, and then quarter teaspoon, as I said, of the Ardbeg. And then, yeah, whatever we want to do with this spice, cardamom bitters, drambuie, maybe both of those things, but only, you know, a little bit of whatever that is to be kind of the, the, the to, to add to the, the finish of the drink there. I think that sounds delicious. Have we settled on a name? Well, I think the spirit of it definitely is that we have got to go with the the cadence of the language here of the the Tamarians, and it's got to be about us, right? So uh, I don't know. Do you want to do you want to go with our roots? Uh, it, you know, are the do you want to go with the roots of our friendship at cocktail bars in Toronto? Also, Latin class in Toronto, though that might not be the thing I remember the most from that summer. But uh, so that's on the table. We could also say something about the show or bold bold suggestion here, Hoagland. It could include both. I actually think so. If I put this on a menu in my the bar that I own that exists in my mind, it would be really fun to have the name of this drink be a Mad Lib. (laughs) Um, And so it's blank with a little indication of proper noun and blank with an indication of proper noun at place. And the person ordering it has to fill in the Mad Lib to order it. This is absolutely ingenious because it. It gives ownership, right, of this type of story to everyone. And it emphasizes just the universality of friendship, of going through experiences together to make connections, to make bonds, which is what this story is about. So uh, that's that's ingenious. That's excellent. Wonderful. It's on the menu. Well, all right. I think we actually do have to now go tinker with this drink since we don't have it, you know, precisely the way we normally do. So that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Valerie Hoagland. We talked about a lot on this episode, and uh, we hope that you'll want to come talk with us more about it. You can drop by our forum at claytemplemedia.com or come by our Clay Temple Media subreddit and let us know what you have to say about this episode and how it matters to you and answers to our questions as well. And also, hey, if you've tinkered with this drink, we would love to hear about that. Uh, Just as a reminder, if you're interested in having your say in which of the Star Trek movie franchises we cover, uh, and I think two of the three have really been invoked in this episode, actually, uh, please come on over to Patreon and join us at the Archon level or higher. We're so really grateful for the support. We're also really, really excited to see which of these franchises wins. It's going to it's gonna shape a big, a big chunk of both of our time. Uh, and it's really cool, even just in this episode, to see how what you all choose for us and the order we record in really helps uh, us build our own understanding of, of Trek each time and leads into our new narrative. So I'm excited to see what we're going to learn from this journey. And I, I want to talk about what you want to hear about. Yeah, it'll be so fun. And and I just want to also give just a huge thanks to everyone who supports us in one way or another. We really do have, I think, the best listeners on the internet, and we really love doing this show for you. And uh, next month, right? Very exciting stuff next month. Picard season one. I'm, I'm so excited about this. I know I keep using that word, and it does mean what I think it means, though, but I do keep using that word uh, because, hey, I've had a big life moment since we started doing this show, which is becoming a parent that has uh, changed my relationship with time. And as it stands right now, there are three seasons of Star Trek that I have never seen. And Picard season one is one of them. And I'm really, really looking forward to getting to tick one of those off the list and to finally talk about it with you, Valerie. And until then, stay spacey.